for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. President-elect Donald Trump begins making selections for his cabinet and staff. He's offered Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions the attorney general post and asked Kansas Congressman Mike Pompeo to be his CIA director. Hillary Clinton makes her first public speech since conceding the election and concerns over the future of the Affordable Care Act trigger a surge in enrollment. Here for the Domestic Hour, the Friday News Roundup, Major Garrett of CBS News, Abby Phillip of The Washington Post, and Olivier Knox of Yahoo News. You are always welcome to join us. You can watch the program because we are video streaming this hour. You can join us by phone at 800 433 8850. You can send us an email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And it's good to see you all. Good morning. Good morning. And as we look at the news today, Major Garrett, looks as though we have a brand new CIA director who has accepted. Yes. The position? Yes. Mike Pompeo, congressman from Kansas, member of the Senate, I mean the House Intelligence Committee, uh, co-author of a report very critical of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton over the Benghazi matter, a report that got the attention of the uh, Trump campaign early on, has been offered and accepted the position of CIA director. It has to be confirmed, so this is a process that has to play out. Uh, first in his class at West Point, Mike Pompeo was, Harvard Law grad, editor of the Harvard Law Review, so he has something in common with our sitting president, uh, an experienced business person, and uh, very much a conservative in the line of what Trump has defined as what he would like in national security. Tough on counterterrorism, skeptical of all the decisions made or not made in regard to Benghazi, willing to throw political punches in that conversation, and unhesitatingly so. He got the call this morning and accepted, and uh, he's... I was not anticipating this pick this morning. I was thinking the CIA would come sometime next week, but uh, they had a very good meeting, that is to say Pompeo and Trump, and Trump decided to move a little bit more rapidly than even those around him expected him to. And, Abby Phillip, we have just sessions as Attorney General. That's uh, by far a more controversial pick. Uh, Jeff Sessions, a conservative, very hardliner on immigration, which uh, will be the key thing here. Uh, Donald Trump has been taking a lot of advice for him on a, from him on a number of issues, but immigration being the foremost among them. Um, as a conservative, Jeff, Jeff Sessions has been sort of on the, the outskirts of the Republican um, the, the the sort of Republican uh, mainstream for quite some time. He's had some controversies in the past. He was not chosen to be a federal judge after, uh, in his confirmation hearing, several uh, former colleagues accused him of outright racism. So I think we can expect some of those form those old stories to reemerge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as he's going forward uh, in in his uh, confirmation hearings, but the the ideological simpatico between these two men uh, really has has firmed up over the last several months, and and Sessions, regardless of of uh, pos- the position that he would be in the Trump administration, is likely to remain a close ally and advisor of Trump's. And Olivier Knox, a retired three-star general, Mike Flynn to be the Trump National Security Advisor. Tell us about him. Former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, his work dismantling militant networks in Afghanistan during the years that he ran military intelligence there generally wins uh, a lot of praise. But it's it's his uh, time managing the DIA and the time in the aftermath that have drawn a lot of criticisms. Um, he uh, has been described as a, as a poor manager of people. He's made extremely disparaging comments about Islam on Twitter. He attended a dinner honoring uh, Vladimir Putin recently, and it appears now my colleague Mike Isakoff is reporting that he attended uh, highly classified briefings while uh, working, it's not clear whether he was actually lobbying, but working for uh, some foreign government. So um, all these folks, I mean, the phrase to you, you've seen a lot of the Democratic statements is thorough vetting. And that's going to mean very different things for very different people. Um, but you can expect all of these people to get grilled. But unusual, importantly, Mike Flynn doesn't need to be confirmed by the Senate. That is important. He's going to be the national security advisor no matter what. Yep. You also had earlier this week Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus uh, appointed to top positions, one as uh, a very close advisor, the other as a very close advisor. What are going to be the two differences between them? Well, it's going to depend on the president, largely, um, where he turns first for for advice and for input. Um, traditionally, and I say this very carefully because this has not been a traditional orthodox campaign and it's not going to be a traditional orthodox White House. Traditionally, the White House uh, chief of staff manages the most valuable resource in the president uh, that the president has, which is time. Decides who gets to call the president, who gets to walk into the Oval Office, um, lays out, can run cabinet meetings and things like that. What we don't know yet, and we won't know until there is uh, an internal conflict or, I think, an argument with congressional Republicans, whether the president elect, then the future president uh, will turn first to Steve Bannon or first to Reince Priebus. Tell us about Steve Bannon, Abby. Well, Steve Bannon, um, uh, until fairly recently, ran uh, Breitbart News, which um, a conservative, a really combative conservative news site um, that became increasingly combative under Breitbart, um, under Steve Bannon's tenure. And, um, but, but more broadly, he's had a lot of, of careers in different areas in media um, and elsewhere, and he has controversially ties to the alt-right. And uh, this is sort of like a loose ideological network of, of folks, some of whom are associated with white supremacy, white nationalism, um, some of whom are associated associated with 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 more simply american nationalism um and so bannon uh has since coming into trump's inner circle uh has really risen as uh the the kind of uh a force for Trump to have an ideological frame for a lot of his agenda that that populist frame that we that we've seen uh take take precedence in the last few months, and also um, this idea that the country needs to be focused on itself and less focused on international entanglements and uh, and immigration as well. Major? So Republicans looking at this see Steve Bannon's history and realize that there are these diverse elements of his career, entertainment, 
business, Goldman Sachs. He was a naval officer and say, well, you know, that's all pretty conventional. But then they also are reminded by the much more recent baggage, which is not just American nationalism and grand conspiracy theories about globalism eating away at the heart of American prosperity and denying middle-class white Americans their birthright to prosperity, but also that he is someone who will always tug Trump in that direction. And so when I had a conversation with Newt Gingrich about this earlier this week, he said, well, Reince Priebus will be the yin to Steve Bannon's yang, and it will all balance out and don't worry. Many Republicans remain worried. Let's hear from Reince Priebus himself talking about Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, I know, is a guy that is really on the same page with a lot of the thing, almost everything that I, I agree with as far as advising President-elect Trump. I mean, he was a force for good on the campaign. He's very wise and smart. He's a London School of uh, Economics, Harvard Business School. People don't know that he was a 10-year naval officer at very high levels advising admirals in the Navy. So... All that is true. What we don't know is the point that Olivia made, which is how does the institutional intensity of the White House separate these jobs? Historically, the chief of staff has, as Olivier perfectly said, controlled the most important component of any presidency, time and access. And over time, chiefs of staff thought to be weaker have asserted themselves. Andy Card, when brought in by George W. Bush, was thought to be comparatively weaker than Karl Rove, Karen Hughes, Ken Melman. Over time, Andy Card asserted himself and became a very directly Mm. powerful chief Mm. of staff. The institutional norms of the White House day-to-day-to-day often invest the chief of staff with that centralized power, and the wise ones and the sharp-knived ones know how to use it. We'll see if uh, Reince Priebus is of that kind of character. And there's also an element of this about uh, the keeper of the sort of institution at the White House may not actually be the one who spends the most time in Donald Trump's ear. And if there's one thing we've learned about Donald Trump, it's whoever's speaking to him in his ear at that moment has the potential to be the most powerful person. And Steve Bannon, by not you know, making sure any trains run on time. He's not responsible for the trains in the White House. Um, by not having that responsibility, uh, he doesn't have to get bogged down in it. And could, it could potentially mean that his position in this White House is is more powerful than um, than previous chiefs of staff. Olivier. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I also think, I mean, the the we're seeing what kind of staff will adjudicate disputes among other kinds of staff. That's a very important part of this of this week's announcement. You know, Priebus and Bannon seem to be, they very much build equally in that in, in the announcement of their positions. Um, Flynn's job is going to be enormous. It's going to be to manage state versus defense versus CIA versus DNI and all these other equities. It's going to be interesting to watch. Lefie Knox, he's chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News short break here. We will be taking your calls, comments, and don't forget we are live streaming video this morning. Stay with us. DC is Daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and 
curiosities. From the district. Tacoma Park. Alexandria. Friendship Heights. Hyattsville. Falls Church. Northeast Washington, D.C. In your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. And welcome back here in the studio for the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup. Abby Phillip, national political reporter for the Washington Post, Libby A. Knox, chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News, and Major Garrett, chief White House correspondent for CBS. I want to ask you all about Mitt Romney. What's happening there, Abby? Lots of stories about him meeting with Trump. Right. These former rivals uh, will come together uh, over the weekend for a meeting. He said uh, some pretty strong things about Donald Trump. Right. I mean, I think very few Republicans came out so forcefully uh, against Trump throughout the primary and the general election as Mitt Romney. and, um, And he did not relent notably, unlike some others like Ted Cruz, who came back and endorsed Trump. And Donald Trump reciprocated um, some of that vitriol over the last several months. So they're, they're meeting, which I think is a positive sign for sort of uh, humanity that that um, they can let bygones be bygones and, and at least sit down in a room. There's been some speculation about what what will come of that meeting, whether this will be um, just an opportunity to show a, a, a degree of um, of like, you know, rising above the above the fray, or will it be an opportunity for, for Trump to evaluate Romney for a position and for in the cabinet or for Romney to evaluate Donald Trump for a position in the cabinet? Um, and so it's unclear. I think there I think that there are uh, some there's a lot of speculation out there. It's unclear whether he would Romney would be offered one or if Romney would accept. Olivier. Yeah, you know, it's, I don't cover the the, the, the Trump pre, the transition here, so it's a little bit hard for me to talk about reporting on this. But my my sense is um, that as he did with Cruz, he's reaching out to prominent former rivals and critics on the Republican side, and we'll see what what Romney says coming out of that meeting is going to be really important. What what Ted Cruz said coming out of that meeting was basically, you know, bygones be bygones. We'll let bygones be bygones. Um, but Mitt Romney, man, he took a – there was this really weird little rumor that he might be considered for state. I don't think that's right. Major will know better than I. I, I don't think that's right. The pattern so far has been loyalists and hardliners, and Mitt Romney is neither. I do cover the Trump transition, and I can tell you this meeting is largely for symbolic reasons, to create the impression of a mending of fences. And frequently – and this is one of the difficult things about covering any transition, especially difficult about covering this transition – things are said to make impressions – and that they were said is true, and that there is a desire to create impressions is true. Those impressions, in some instances, have no relationship to facts behind decisions at all. So what Mitt Romney is, will not be considered for a cabinet position in a Trump presidency. So why period. did that, the that's not my inference? That's that, what that's what major. that's what people who are very close to this process have told me. But that doesn't mean it's a useless endeavor. That doesn't mean it's a pointless exercise. Mending offenses and bringing people in for conversations and settling scores and starting anew with a power structure now firmly established. I'm the president. You're the critical rival. You are coming to me, and we're going to have a conversation on my turf, on my terms. 
There are uses for that in politics. And big boys and big girls can play that game. Guess what, Mitt Romney? Get ready to be the big boy because you're sitting down with a new president and he remembers everything you ever said. All right. On that very point, turf, I want to ask, what in the world is New York doing with this kind of huge traffic jam that has been created by Donald Trump uh, working out of Trump Tower? I have heard nothing but disaster stories. Well, I have not been up to New York since uh, the and election day, election you. day afterwards. After 16 months on the road, I uh, informed my uh, esteemed colleagues and, most importantly, my management, I'm not traveling for a while, so I'll watch and report what's happening at Trump Tower from a distance. But I can just tell you what I've gathered from my colleagues. It is something that is evolving and very difficult to create, a perimeter around a major skyscraper, the Secret Service would typically like a perimeter of a block in every direction if it had its way. A block in every direction on Fifth Avenue at the very southern end of Central Park is like the nightmare of all nightmares, logistically and from a security perspective, and from something that creates what the Secret Service wants to establish with the president-elect, which is a degree of comfort and a degree of communication, which is essential to everything that moves forward in their relationship. Because this is a two-way street. How presidents deal with the Secret Service and communicate with them and that that back and forth is essential to the safety of the president and the way the Secret Service negotiates all these things going forward. And, uh, of course, Donald Trump slipped off to have a dinner the other night telling Secret Service that the lid was on. This is uh, the culmination of, and I know Olivier is looking at me, this is the culmination of several months of a uh, real, real battle between the press corps and both the Clinton and Trump campaigns, but especially the Trump campaign, which has refused to um, make steps in the direction uh, of establishing a protective pool so that journalists can cover the president-elect when he moves, uh, when he goes to a dinner, which is, by the way, not about the dinner. We don't really care what he ate that night. What we care about is what would have happened what might have happened if he had been in a restaurant and something happened, we would not have known. Um, the, pre- the press would not have known, and therefore the American public would not have known. And so that is a problem, and I think it's one that's being negotiated right now, but uh, the signs right now are not, not great. Uh, right. They are not moving in this direction. We've got tons to cover here. What's the role of Jared Kushner of NBA? TBD, he's obviously a very close advisor to Donald Trump. His son-in-law. That's right, his son-in-law, Ivanka's husband. Um, He's a very close advisor, close enough that there are reports, again, I'll defer to Major on this, reports that Donald Trump would like to see him uh, either formally hired, which would require challenging a a longstanding rule against nepotism, and also given a a top-secret security clearance in order to be able to sit on the the briefings. This poses a lot of questions and challenges for for conflict of interest, because Donald Trump has said that his kids will be running the family businesses while he is president. Um, but he's he's a, a young man. He's 32, I think, 35, something like that. Um, and uh, and clearly Donald Trump is relying on him enormously. One of the questions I've had about the Trump transition is he came in with such a small team. Um, it must be difficult, I think, to uh, – and we're a small team that is fiercely loyal to the to the principal here. Um, and I wonder to what degree that, that's complicated his ability to reach beyond that circle and talk to people – 
not necessarily the people who were vocal critics like Mitt Romney, but people who stayed on the sidelines entirely, whether it's people like uh, retired General Jim Mattis, who I've been told has been in loose conversation with the transition team, or people like Steve Hadley, the former Bush National Security Advisor, sort of the career, the establishment people in the party. And yet it would seem that the State Department, neither the State Department nor Department of Defense had had access or given the Trump team any advice or newspapers, papers of importance. Right. These briefing books, it's just unclear the degree to which the Trump transition is engaging with um, the national security apparatus on some of these meetings. Um, one one thing I wanted to mention it's related to Jared Kushner and also this subject in his meeting yesterday with the uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe uh, sitting in that meeting was Ivanka Trump. Um, and that was quite alarming to a lot of people in addition to the fact that she is Donald Trump's daughter. She is supposed to be the keeper of his businesses once he becomes president and already they're establishing uh, a pattern of of bringing f- family members into the process of um, running running the government. I uh, this is a tangential point, but I must say I was more than a little distraught when Ivanka Trump appeared, and then immediately after her statement, her appearance, her bracelet was priced at 10000 plus and could be purchased. I mean, I, uh, I notice don't was sent to fashion reporters that this bracelet was the one she wore on 60 Minutes during the interview with Leslie Stahl, my colleague, and that was a fashion item, a business item. You can now get this bracelet that was on 60 Minutes, a rapid-fire commercialization and exploitation of an appearance on a television interview, a commingling the president-elect's first public appearance before a journalist and business enterprises of the Trump was organization. Was anybody else disturbed by well, that? Well, we, we, we duly noted it on my network, and it's part of the conversation. Quickly, the transition teams today for the Trump transition are meeting at State Justice and Defense today only because all the relative relevant paperwork was only filled out yesterday. It had to be refilled out and re-signed by the new transition director, Vice President-elect Mike Pence. To Olivier's point about General Mattis, he'll be visiting Trump this weekend in Bedminster. But the the signing of the paperwork is really, really important. This is the whole... We always talk about the top-line positions, the cabinet positions, and the rest of it. But there's actually a legal process that unfolds here to fill these 4,000 jobs. And it does start with a memorandum memorandum of understanding, the naming of these transition teams, paperwork for these transition teams to clear them to go get those briefings and those briefing books and the rest of it. So they couldn't actually legally get access to, say, the CIA or the Department of Defense until yesterday afternoon when the White House received that information. Then why did the transition team take so long to get those papers? Because they didn't think they were going to win, and uh, because New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who was in charge of the transition, didn't think they were going to win. And they did. There was this guy, again, I don't cover the Trump campaign, but one Trump source told me we forgot the running part and hit the ground running. Interesting. What about Chris Christie, Abby? Where is he now? Well, we've seen the the rapid um, exodus of Chris Christie and all people associated with him from the Trump transition, um, in part because as 
as Olivier noted, in his running of the transition process, uh, when when everybody woke up on November 9th and they realized Donald Trump is going to be the next president, they checked in on the transition and things were not going that well. Um, and, and and beyond that, uh, there is some personal... Uh, there's some personal water under the bridge between Jared Kushner, a Donald Trump's son-in-law, and Chris Christie, who was the prosecutor who put Jared Kushner's father in prison. Uh, so this is comes as no surprise to people uh, who know that that relationship um, has always been tenuous. They've said a lot of pub- great public things about each other, um, but it is a it is a tenuous relationship. And, and Chris Christie was the first big Republican to come out and endorse Donald The most prominent Trump. of those who ran against him, certainly. Uh, Jeff Sessions was the first senator to endorse Trump. Uh, that's why he got the job as attorney general. His loyalty was uh, tested and affirmed over and over and over again. And Christie and everyone associated with this transition are now persona non grata. They are not just out. They are not even relevant. They are completely in exile. And one reason the transition was insufficient is because Trump invested no time, effort, or energy. One of the things that uh, you're obligated to do as a nominee of a major party for your transition before you become president-elect is you have to raise money to hire the staff for it. The federal government under legislation provides space and some materials, but you have to raise the money to hire the people to run your transition. Trump raised almost no money for it, did not care about it, thought there was something that might jinx him psychologically if he invested too much in the transition. How do you know that? I've talked to people who were involved in the transition. So he now has to raise that money. No, not now. Once you become president-elect, there is legislation that provides all the requisite finances, space, everything. Once you become president-elect, the taxpayers carry out your transition. But you still need the bodies, and they're way short of bodies. And you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And Hillary Clinton made her first public post-election speech on Wednesday Let's hear a little about what she had to say. I know that over the past week, a lot of people have asked themselves whether America is the country we thought it was. The divisions laid bare by this election run deep. But please listen to me when I say this. America is worth it. Our children are worth it. Believe in our country, fight for our values, and never, ever give up. Pretty strong statement. Pretty strong statement. And, um, you know, everyone's wondering what Hillary Clinton's doing next and and whether she will have a role uh, in the Democratic Party's soul-searching reassessment of priorities and the rest of it. Um, Bernie Sanders, speaking to a breakfast of reporters yesterday, said, of course she will. She will be an absolutely vital voice. Um, but that, but but alluding to the depth of work ahead for the Democratic Party to recover from this election. So she's making some strong statements, um, trying to keep despondent Democrats in the mix, still involved um, but um, exactly what she's going to be doing going forward is a little bit of a, of a mystery. And meanwhile, congressional Democrats are looking at their own leadership. You've got Tim Ryan about to challenge Nancy Pelosi, Abby. Well, t- uh, Tim Ryan, uh, congressman from Ohio, is uh, the leading edge of a growing concern among Democrats about whether their leadership looks like their party, uh, whether their leadership represents the parts of their party that need to grow in order for them to win again. And uh, and as a representative of a state from, from the 
in Rust Belt, industrial Midwest, where Donald Trump uh, overperformed and Hillary Clinton underperformed. Uh, it's a message that says we need to spend more time listening to the middle of the country and less time listening to the coast. Uh, we've Democrats have had leadership uh, from California and New York, and uh, and I think many of the Democrats who are interested in seeing a change of guard value Nancy Pelosi's leadership. They recognize her contributions, um, but they're looking over at the Republican conference and they're seeing a young Paul Ryan leading <laughs> leading the Republican Party, and they wonder where's our young next generation of leadership. And so we're seeing that. Uh, generational and also a little bit of an ideological um, uh, divide really emerging in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think it's still likely that Nancy Pelosi come. It's very likely that she comes out of this on top. Uh, but the fact that there is a challenge sends a strong signal that this is an issue Democrats will have to deal with. And quickly, how will Democrats deal with a Trump-led White House and Congress? My sense of it is, uh, and I, I, w- I must confess, uh, because I've been spending so much time on the Trump transition, I've not had lengthy conversations with lots of different Democrats. So these are more inferences than actual hard-edged reporting. But my sense is they're going to, by their very institutional weakness, give the Trump administration time to sort things out, understanding that they have a threshold belief that it's not going to go well. They don't want to be early contributors overtly to predicting failure, but when it comes, they want to be prepared to pounce. Major Garrett of CBS News, and when we come back, we'll open the phones and take your calls. Stay with us. Welcome back. A number of you are asking about Trump headquarters during this transition period from Claire in Maryland. Are the taxpayers paying rent to Trump since he's using his home slash office as transition headquarters? Olivier. Um, well, they certainly would be paying for expenses like Secret Service protection, just not just salaries, but if the Secret Service is overnighting in Trump Tower, then you'd expect there to be a financial arrangement there. Um, the Secret Service, for example, paid for seats on the Trump on the Trump plane. This is a normal uh, that is a normal arrangement. Um, so yeah, I, would, I, would, I don't know about I don't know about paying rent because of the transition office, but certainly there are a lot of taxpayer uh, funded expenses as part of the transition. Um, so it wouldn't it wouldn't totally surprise All me. Right. It's an excellent question. It might be that it's a reimbursement for that office space as measured by the General Services Administration. There is a facility here in Washington, a transition office, that the taxpayers are fund- funding 100 percent. It's an interesting question. I'm glad she raised it. I'll look into it. It, right. it raises one interesting thing. During the Bush years, when, the, when, when George W. Bush would go to his ranch, you know, the, yeah. Secret, the Secret Service made all these uh, add-ons to the ranch, a helipad, for example. And, so, and I, I don't remember the exact amount, but they added an enormous amount of value to the property. Um, 
again, still still proper and legitimate, but it, it, it does raise some interesting questions. Let me talk about Chuck Schumer. So Chuck Schumer uh, uh, looks to be the, the – uh, he is the top Democrat now in the, in the Senate with Harry Reid's departure. Um, he will be deciding a lot of, uh, about how Democrats, Senate Democrats, interact with the, with the Trump administration. Um, but there's there's some early signs already of potential cooperation on some on some issues. Um, remember, Trump ran uh, with a lot of populist ideas. One of the most notable features of his, of his campaign speeches was a promise, an, a rock ribbed, ironclad promise that he was not going that you were going to get your Social Security, you were going to get your Medicare, and you were going to get your Medicaid. Um, that ran counter, deeply counter to, for example, Paul Ryan's plans. Um, he wants to overhaul entitlements, reduce spending. Um, Democrats hope that they can peel off, that they can sort of get get Trump to lead with his populist ideas, you know, raising the federal minimum wage, protecting entitlements and things like that. So they're they're walking this tightrope because on the one hand, they don't want to support um, his crackdown on immigration and things like that. But they do, uh, they, they profess to think, they say they believe that they can peel off, uh, they might be able to peel off enough support to advance the, the populist stuff that's been part of the Democratic agenda for years. That what? covers infrastructure as well. And Chuck Schumer, along with Lindsey Graham, wrote legislation for years about currency manipulation in China. And that was also something that Trump identified. And if they go down that Sherrod road, Brown, Schumer will be Sherrod right Brown, there. very liberal Schumer, Democrat from, Schumer, from Ohio, Schumer also and Sherrod Brown will be yep. right there. Yep. And what about uh, Obamacare? Well, it looks like the the. Uh, the Republicans in Congress really do intend to get on this as soon as possible, repealing the Affordable Care Act law. Um, but Trump himself has kind of walked back some of his statements. I think he recognizes that certain parts of the ACA are very popular, including keeping your kids on your insurance until they're 26, uh, covering pre-existing conditions. Um I wouldn't be surprised if the if the mandate to cover birth control remained in a Trump presidency. Uh, so there are a lot of parts of the law that Trump wants to keep, and that leaves the question: What is there left to repeal, and how how can you do that without undermining the yeah, very structure true. of the health care system in this country? All right, we've had a number of tweets about the electoral college and the fact that Hillary Clinton had more than a million more popular votes. I want to let you all know we are going to be doing a full hour on Monday in the first hour on the Electoral College, its history, what it means state by state, what it means for individual voters, and whether, in fact, your vote really counts. So tune in Monday for that. Let's open the phones now. First to Logansville, Pennsylvania. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, uh, Diane. Listen to you all the time. Thank you. I wanted to ask uh, what the panel thinks about uh, why nothing has gone any further uh, about the news that came out on the day that Trump met with Obama at the White House. The news was in the Washington Post, the AP, about the Russian foreign diplomats coming out and admitting that uh, they had been in communication with the Trump campaign throughout the campaign. And this is, uh, you know, this is a major, major offense if indeed uh, it's proven that Trump campaign colluded with a foreign power to commit cyber espionage. All right, let's uh, hear what you have to say. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. That was a, a really amazing story. And one of the questions that, that I have right now is, are there enough... 
Russian hawks among the Republican majorities in Congress that that they will that they will uh, ally with Democrats and investigate these allegations as well as the allegations of Russian hacking um, of uh, of John Podesta's emails, D- DNC emails, and the rest of it. Because um, remember, Democrats don't have a majority in either house; they can't by themselves trigger any investigations. Um, so, uh, you know, we, John McCain came out with a very forceful statement the other day saying to Donald Trump, no, you will not normalize relations with Russia. But let's see if there's enough Republican support for looking into those allegations to generate uh, to generate at, at least some some light in addition to the heat. I raised this question with Josh Earnest, the White House press secretary, the day the story broke. It was, it was also the day that President-elect Trump and the president met in the Oval Office. I said, have you seen these reports? Do you find anything untoward about them? Are you concerned that this was something in kind different than what often occurs with a nominee from both parties? Embassies will reach out and want to have normal conversations just to build bridges to prepare in case this person becomes the next president of the United States. Josh said from the podium he found initially nothing overtly alarming about this. But as Olivier alluded to, with this subject, there is a considerable amount of smoke. And there will have to be, if it ever goes beyond that, a much more concentrated investigation. And it will be telling just how, if any Republicans beyond John McCain or even John McCain want to go down and create that fire. At me. There's also an element of uh, over the course of the campaign, we heard uh, about reports that the FBI had been looking into questions of whether there was any coordination or communication between Trump advisors and Russia. And, and I think that's an underlying drama that has not resolved yet. Uh, there are a lot of career folks in the FBI who we know are either support, overtly support Trump or are sympathetic toward him. Uh, James Comey has been torn about coming forward publicly and making statements about just the, the, the basic statement that Russia was engaged in hacking throughout the election, whether they wanted to help Donald Trump or hurt Hillary Clinton or, or neither. Uh, so James Comey has been torn about whether he wants to engage with that. He remains the FBI director in a Trump administration, and I think it's an open question how that agency moves forward from this point on this particular subject. All right. Let's go to Bobby in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're on the air. First, I want to say, Diane, thank you for, uh, you know, your, your time on the show. And, thank and you. you're going to be missed. And, thank you. Uh, my question, you know, this week there was a discussion about um, fake news stories on Facebook. And, you know, I, from from a perspective of uh, somebody who's reported on, on so many of these things, um, do you think that more of a wedge has been driven this election than with others because of some of that fake news and some of those things that were were designed specifically to do that, or do you think that the people that form their opinions to uh, to vote and elect president uh, are more informed than just believing, you know, a fake news story on Facebook? Abby. There's been uh, an enormous amount of damage done to trust in media in this cycle, and um, and and giving a specific, very specific example, uh, one of my colleagues interviewed a person who made fake news and made an enormous amount of money making fake news, and one of his fake news stories was um, tweeted out by Donald Trump's son as fact. And it was completely fiction, and um, that was one of many occurrences in which. 
fake news, things that aren't completely untrue, were distributed very widely from people who are trusted by some large segment of the American voting population, um, either by Donald Trump or his advisors or his children. And uh, I think that's a that's an enormous problem. You cannot put that genie back into the bottle. Um, once that phenomenon has become mainstreamed, I think it undermines information, it undermines truth, it undermines tr- people's trust in what they see online and in newspapers. And um, and there are no easy answers for it, but it's very real, and, I, and I, there's a lot of concern about it. The president-elect's choice to be national security advisor, Mike Flynn, former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, tweeted out fake news during this campaign. Um, it, it's an enormous problem. We should distinguish between fake news, news that is designed to mislead, and news, news outlets just getting stuff wrong. Because Lord you knows tell we get us stuff wrong. what he tweeted out? I believe it was a story. I need to go back and look at it, but I believe it was a story about the Clintons having a, uh, a ring of child prostitutes. It was something like that. Um, I, I, again, I'd have to go back and look at it. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 you see it everywhere. I mean, it's, it's like having your uh, cranky, drunk uncle at the Thanksgiving table, except it's all over your Facebook feed and all, all, all over Twitter. Um, and again, we got a lot of things wrong in this in this election, so I think we we should probably be be humble about that part. But it's different. There's a difference between getting something wrong and setting out deliberately to mislead the public, and that is what this hoax news, fake news stuff does. And Diane, you had a show about this very topic earlier this week. I'll just offer one observation, as I dealt with this all the time on the campaign trail, meeting Trump supporters. Any fact checking I did for them or for many of them was prima facie evidence that I was biased and that I was wrong. So fact-checking Trump was proof not that he was wrong, but that he was right, and that anyone who would raise a question about the underlying relationship between what he said and the facts was biased and therefore legitimately disregarded from the beginning. So it wasn't as if there was a conversation about this. It wasn't as if facts were litigated back and forth. The very raising of a question about the factual basis of a Trump assertion was proof you were wrong and biased. And that is the atmosphere that I found myself existing in as a reporter, and to call it challenging would be an understatement. I I need to correct you, Olivier. It was Michael Flynn's son, Michael G. Flynn, who shared stories alleging top Hillary Clinton aide Huma Abedin had connections to the Muslim Brotherhood pushed a conspiracy theory that Senator Marco Rubio was a closeted homosexual and abused campaign and repeatedly used expletives to attack Trump's political opponents. So not Flynn himself, but his son. All right, let's go now to Key West, Florida. Mike, you're on the air. Um, yes, I'd like to know what happens when he gets his, when the president gets his uh, top secret briefings, and the briefers figure out that he's passing along this information to his family members with which to make business decisions. And my second question is: Does this election finally drive a stake through the heart of the uh, Bush and Clinton political machines? And I'll take my answers off the air. All Thank right, thanks. Do you want to start, Abby? Well, um, you know, he, we know that he's already begun getting his uh, his presidential daily briefings. These are the same briefings that the president of the United States is currently getting. Um, the question of whether his family members are either a part of those briefings or receive information from it, 
uh, well, let's just put it this way. Uh, disseminating intelligence information to people who are not cleared to receive that information is a crime. Uh, if they are, in fact, cleared, uh, then we would be talking about the questions of the nepotism laws and whether Trump will violate those. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm Show. And what about the second part of our caller's question? Does this drive a stake through the uh, dynastic relationship our country had for a good long while with families Bush and Clinton? I, I think for a time it does. Uh, Chelsea Clinton may have her designs on a political life. George P. Bush may have designs on a political life. He already has a political life. But at the presidential level, I think we can safely say for a decade at least, if not longer, there will not be a Bush or a Clinton around the conversation as they have, it is worth pointing out, for more than 30 years. All right. Quick uh, quick correction to the correction. Uh, Michael Flynn actually did tweet fake news. He tweeted out a story from an outlet called TruePundit.com that claimed that the, the FBI had found so much information on um, uh, uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop that uh, Hillary and some of her senior advisors would go to prison. So he himself, he himself did, and did share his, fake. Uh, that is correct. All right. I'm glad we've got these corrections and <laughs> corrections. Abby, we have lost a an extremely beloved pioneering journalist this week. When Eiffel died, she was just 61 years old. She had uterine cancer, which just breaks my heart to see her go that way. Did you know her? I did have an opportunity about a year ago, just before I came, you know, just before I started going out on the campaign trail. And I was at a dinner where she was being honored uh, for her um, amazing reporting and her amazing career. And um, that was the first time I had the opportunity to meet her. And the very first thing she did was gave me a huge hug. And she said, um, she said, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh. <laughs> and she said that she started giving me all this advice about what clothes to wear and, and really encouraging me uh, to to strap in for a year on the campaign trail because she had done that many, many years ago, multiple times. And, um, you know, as a young African-American reporter in D.C., I have always looked up to Gwen. And she has always been uh, both a, a role model to me personally and also someone who is of unimpeachable character has an incredible smile and optimism about her. And she was always known to be the, the person who would ask straightforward questions and would get right down to the facts. Absolutely. And that's what we need more of right now. So Hillary Clinton often says there's a special place in hell for women who knock down other women. I believe there's a special place in heaven for respected journalists who reach down to young journalists who are just trying to find their way and give them encouragement and give them support. Gwen Eiffel did that for me when I first arrived in Washington covering the Senate press gallery, wet behind the ears, scared to death. She was at the New York Times. She had no business looking at me, paying any attention to me. In fact, she did. I was on Washington Week as a guest of hers many, many times. Everything that Ashley said is 100% true. We are all at a loss. The industry is at a loss. The profession is at a loss. And humanity is at a loss. Uh, I didn't know Gwen Ifill at all. I never had any. I think I had one social interaction with her, but uh, it's been very telling to me that a lot of the reporters that I respect, including Abby and Major, have these kinds of personal tributes to her. I think that, that tells me an enormous amount. But what kind of a what kind of a journalist colleague and human being she was? Indeed, and I offer my sympathies to her family and to her partner on the PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodruff. Together, the first female co-anchors 
of a national news program. Thank you all for being here, Major Garrett, Abby Phillip, Olivier Knox, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Diane Reem. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis.